Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. As you know, Sojourner Truth will be heard once a week on these airwaves. We will continue to be nationally syndicated. For our listeners who joined us regularly when we were doing four days a week, please know that our special features will continue, though not weekly, but spread throughout the month. Those include our Earth Minute, our Earth Watch, and our popular roundtable. So listen up as we announce the new days for those features. Last week, you heard part one of Bishop William Barber's address to the recent Moral Congress held by the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. The event was held in Washington, D.C. from June 19th to 21st. Delegations participated from 30 states around the country, as well as participants from member organizations of the Poor People's Campaign. There were over 700 participants all ready to continue the work of building the campaign. At the 2023 PPC Congress, a study was introduced that confirmed what many of us knew, that poverty is a leading cause of death in the United States. Indeed, the study confirmed that poverty is the fourth leading cause of death in the United States. The Congress included plenary sessions, time for state meetings, an afternoon of lobbying on the Hill, and reintroduction of the third Reconstruction Resolution by Congresswoman Barbara Lee and Congresswoman Jayapal. Today, we will bring you part two of a presentation made by Bishop Barber at the 2023 Poor People's Campaign Congress. Now, after the Congress, in response to recent Supreme Court decisions, Bishop Barber said, and I'll quote, In 1967, Dr. King spoke about his painful discovery that many people who supported the work in Selma and Birmingham were now not willing to go all the way because they were only really outraged by the extremist behavior rather than believing in genuine equality. It was easy to move people to action when fire hoses and brutal beatings were commonplace. But getting Americans to take sustained action against oppression has proven difficult over the last 50 years because oppression has been intricately woven into the fabric of our socioeconomic reality as a result of politicians, Democrats and Republicans alike, doling out compromise after compromise and displaying an unwillingness to go all the way on justice. The end of quote from Bishop Barber. We are going to be hearing part two of his address to the 2023 Poor People's Campaign Congress. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. 
For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead. U.S. President Joe Biden is in Lithuania for a NATO summit where Sweden will likely ascend to NATO membership after Turkey withdrew its objections. NATO head Jan Stoltenberg, speaking at a press conference with President Biden today, blamed Russia's President Vladimir Putin for the new membership due to his war in Ukraine. He went to war because he wanted less NATO. He's getting more NATO, uh, more NATO military presence in the eastern part of the alliance, and two new members, Finland already a member, and then uh, Sweden soon to become a member. So that just highlights uh, the uh, big strategic mistake that President Putin uh, made when he invaded uh, invaded uh, uh, Ukraine. More work remains to determine a path forward for Ukraine's future with the alliance. President Volodymyr Zelensky criticized the absence of a timetable for his country's entry into NATO as absurd. Zelensky has landed in Lithuania to join the summit. His frustration could renew tensions just as they're beginning to subside. Today, Russia accused NATO of using Ukraine as a pawn. Meanwhile, Russian missile launches killed a woman in the Kherson region today. Air raids were heard in Ukraine's capital, Kiev, after Russian warplanes were detected in flight. And overnight, Ukraine claimed it shot down 26 Russian drones. The World Meteorological Organization said the first week of July was the hottest around the world, breaking all previous records. And extreme weather is forecast in the days ahead due to record global sea surface temperatures in May, June, and July in the Atlantic, along with a warming El Nino weather pattern that's beginning to show. Forecasts to bring record triple-digit temperatures to Florida and Texas this week, reaching up to 110 degrees. The record warming ocean water in the 90s along Florida's coast is threatening delicate coral reefs, depriving swimmers of cooling dips and adding a bit more ick to the state's already oppressive summer weather. And it's also led to record sea ice loss in the Antarctic, some 2.6 million square kilometers of lost sea ice, according to the WMO. Meanwhile, President Joe Biden has declared a state of emergency in Vermont due to flash flooding from a storm that's also hit parts of New York, New England, and Connecticut. One person in New York's Hudson Valley died as she was trying to leave her home during flash flooding. Officials say the storm has also already wrought tens of millions of dollars in damage. Lethal flooding has also simultaneously hit India, Japan, China, and Turkey. Schools in New Delhi are forced to close Monday after heavy monsoonal rains battered the Indian capital with landslides and flash floods that killed at least 15 people over the last three days. In Japan, torrential rain pounded the southwest, causing floods and mudslides that left two people dead and at least six others missing. Scientists have long warned that more extreme rainfall is expected in a warming world. Iowa's legislature convenes for a special session today to vote on a six-week abortion ban when the heartbeat of a fetus can be detected. Demonstrators for and against the bill are expected to rally inside and outside the building. Republican Governor Kim Reynolds ordered the rare special session just six days ago after the state Supreme Court declined to reinstate an identical law she signed in 2018. Most Republican-led states have drastically limited abortion access in the years since the U.S. Supreme Court ended rights to it. More than a dozen states have bans with limited exceptions. 
In one state, Georgia, bans abortion after cardiac activity is detected. Republicans unveiled sweeping rollbacks on voting rights Monday, modeled after Georgia's voting legislation passed in the wake of Donald Trump's presidential loss. Voting rights advocates are calling it the Big Lie Bill. A coalition of more than 250 groups called the Declaration for American Democracy said in a statement the legislation would increase the role of mega donors in our elections and encourage deliberate barriers to make it harder for eligible voters to cast their ballot. New York Congressman Joe Morrell, a Democrat, warned against the legislation at the field hearing Monday. Letting vigilantes subject their neighbors based on no evidence to state-enforced inquisitions in the name of election integrity is a nightmare out of an Orwellian novel. Unfortunately, this doublespeak is in line with modern Republican orthodoxy. SB 202's provisions simultaneously limit voter access while overburdening election administration. An overburdened election administration in turn further jeopardizes voter access. The big lie origins of SB 202 mirror the big lie origins of the majority's ACE Act, and the damaging effects of SB 202 on Georgia voters will be imposed upon all Americans if the ACE Act is enacted nationally. Joe Morrell, a Democrat from New York. I'm Christina Onestead reporting for Pacifica Radio. Those were our news headlines. The Poor People's Campaign is continuing the work of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. The first Poor People's Campaign was put forward by the National Welfare Rights Organization. They made that proposal to the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, who then followed up on it. Dr. King was assassinated before the first Poor People's Campaign could come to fruition, but people who worked closely with Dr. King and campaigners with the National Welfare Rights Organization ensured that the PPC would continue. And it did. It did. With thousands of people from across the nation of all races, immigration status, urban and rural, descended on Washington, D.C., for what was the first days-long occupation of the nation's capital. The PPC was revived on Mother's Day in 2018 with the joint coordinators, the Reverend William Barber, now Bishop Barber, of Repairs of the Breach, and the Reverend Liz Theo Harris. Today, the PPC is a dynamic fusion movement that refuses to separate the interlocking injustices of poverty, racism, the war economy, ecological devastation, and what they describe as the nation's twisted moral narrative. The PPC proclaims, quote, when we lift from the bottom, everybody rises, and at their events, they highlight the stories of those most impacted by interlocking injustices, not only personal stories of suffering, but how impacted people are coming together to organize, to push back. There are now Poor People's Campaign coordinating committees in 40 states across the nation. The PPC is calling for a new period of reconstruction, one that ends poverty and its related injustices. And with the recent actions by the Supreme Court rolling back hard-fought-for rights uh, and protections, including affirmative action, and with military budgets continuing to increase, 
with the climate at a crisis level and the right to welfare, food stamps, and other social programs being made into forced work programs, with the ending of the extended child tax credit, the rise in white supremacist activity, a fusion movement like the Poor People's Campaign is needed now more than ever. Let us go now to part two of Bishop Barber addressing the 2023 Poor People's Campaign Moral Poverty Action Congress. And so there's two ways we can think of poverty. One is, are you currently poor? Were you poor this year? But we also look at what we call cumulative poverty. So over the past 10 years, what proportion of those years were you poor? And we can estimate the effect of each of these on your probability of passing away. Now, beyond all that, I'll add that we're going to give these numbers. We've been saying poverty is the fourth leading cause of death, or at least as big as the fourth leading cause of death. But actually, those numbers are conservative. And I mean conservative, Ooh, and they're probably underestimates. Mm, no, yeah. I'm just being a black preacher. My, my. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'll tell you, so you understand the numbers, why they're conservative. They're lower bound estimates. It's probably much higher than this. First of all, we don't have children in our data. We're only looking at people 15 years old and over. A big cause of death in America is infant mortality, and of course that's associated with poverty. Now, we control for all kinds of other factors. We know whether or not people have chronic conditions, like Alzheimer's, whether they have diabetes and so forth, whether they've experienced an acute health event, like a stroke or a heart attack, and we can control for those. Even controlling for those factors, we're finding these effects of poverty. Further, we stopped our analysis in 2019 before COVID. And as we all know, COVID killed a lot of people because of poverty. Now, moreover, all of the social science studies that we do, especially our own, we're missing a lot of poor people. Our surveys are biased to underrepresent poor people. We don't count the unhoused people because we have a household panel survey. If you don't have a household, we can't interview you, okay? We don't count institutionalized people, and most likely many of them would be poor. Now, moreover, think about who doesn't answer survey questions, who doesn't answer surveys. It's poor people. Low-income people are less likely to participate in surveys. So I teach in Southern California, and when I ask my students, many of whom are undocumented students themselves or children of undocumented immigrants, I say, say the Census Bureau comes up to your door and knocks on the door, would you tell them how many people live here and how much money the household has? And no, they wouldn't do that. So we're missing these disadvantaged populations systemically, and so our estimates are conservative, okay? So think of poverty as a risk factor that can be expressed through lots of kinds of ways of disease, but it is a conservative estimate. Okay, so you can go to the next slide. All right, and so the way to think about this is you can come up with these estimates, and we could tell you that poverty would increase the probability of mortality by a factor of 1.4. That's current poverty, being poverty today, will affect, increase the probability of mortality by a factor of 1.4. Cumulative poverty, the proportion being poor over the past 10 years, in this case being poor all of the past 10 years, increases the, the probability of mortality by a factor of 1.7. But those numbers are called hazard ratios, and I find them a little bit hard to understand. So look at this graph. It gives you a clear sense of what these numbers mean. The black line are those people that are not in poverty, and the x-axis is the age of these people. And as you see, the black line, these people are surviving. This is a survival curve. But then they start to pass away as they get older, because unfortunately, age still predicts mortality. All right? 
The yellow line is for those in poverty. And what you see is that their survival starts to fall off much sooner than those not in poverty. And especially in the ages of 40s, 50s, and 60s, you see a much lower survival rate amongst those in poverty than amongst those not in poverty. And think of it this way, is that poverty is killing people in their 40s, 50s, and 60s prematurely versus those that are not in poverty. Now, this is a big amount of mortality this leads to, and you can go to the next slide, and you can see some ways to compare this. So like I said, we can be technical and say it's not a cause, it's a risk factor, causes are physiological breakdowns, but I can tell you that poverty would be as big as the fourth leading cause of poverty, all right? And in current poverty, just this right now being poor, this amounts to 6.5% of deaths, which is about 183,000 deaths in the United States, or as Reverend Barber taught me, about 500 deaths a day. And that's just current poverty. Current poverty leads to more death than accidents, lower respiratory diseases, stroke, Alzheimer's. I like to point out that we worry a lot about crime in America. We're very obsessed with crime. And poverty kills 10 times as many people as homicide. And many of those homicides themselves are linked to poverty. Poverty kills more than five times as many people as from firearms and 2.6 times as many. And of course, those risks are associated with poverty as well. Cumulative poverty kills even more. So if you've been poor for a very, very long time, as many people are, it's as much as 10% of deaths and almost 300,000 deaths, okay? And I'll move on to the next slide now and just summarize this a little bit more big picture. We should think of poverty as responsible for a huge amount of mortality. I underline our estimates are conservative. It's probably much higher than this. And even if you don't want to call poverty a cause of death, it's as big as the fourth leading cause of death. So we could even say it's more than the fourth leading cause wow. of death. Okay? Now beyond that, I would what's see the, the head of it? What's ahead of it? Cancer, heart disease, and it's on this slide right before it. Go back one slide if we can. Um, so cancer, heart disease, and I believe lower respiratory disease is next highest. Okay? Yeah. And uh, uh, dementia is a big right. cause of poverty. Thank you. Okay. All right. So if we go back to the last slide, I would argue that this gives us a clear understanding of some puzzles we've had. It gives us a key piece of the puzzle. So it's not news. Everybody knows that there are enormous racial and ethnic disparities in mortality in America, that African-American people are likely to live four or five years younger, that, to die five, four or five years younger than white people. And this is a key piece of that puzzle. Because there are huge racial disparities in poverty, which there are, that's a reason why we see such big disparities in mortality. Moreover, we've long known that the United States has high mortality compared to other rich democracies, that we don't live as long as they live in Germany and Japan and France and other places. And the reason, a big reason for this, is that we have these very, very high rates of poverty. Now, beyond that, I would say that I want us to think about this in terms of a cost-benefit exercise, all right? And what I really want is not just to have a moral victory. We're a moral campaign, we're a moral movement, but I don't want us to be satisfied with moral victories. I want to win. I want to change the discussion, change the debate, influence policy so we reduce this poverty. And let me, and let me help you as a march. This is why we got to be in conversation. Because, see, those of you all in the academy often think that morality is to feel good. It's not. You cannot be moral without economic victory. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> so you do want a moral victory. That's because if you, want, if you want to change policy, see, that's the difference. We yeah. put morality like it's over here yeah. and then cost. You, a budget is a moral document. 
Absolutely. Right? Yeah. A, a, a health bill is a moral document. What so it's actually saying the same thing. And then here you have to kind of be careful. You don't want not a, like to win, but over here we just being moral. No. Yeah. It, the Constitution says establish justice. Ain't a damn thing just about poverty kept being the fourth uh, lead cause of death. Okay. Ab absolutely. All right. Absolutely. I was thinking about it in terms of like, you know, if your team is losing a game and it comes from behind and it gets really close and almost wins the game but came back and battled hard, we might call that no, like no, a No, no, that, that ain't a moral victory. That's Look, not I a played football. <laughs> Don't even bring that in the room. We talking about winning. We either going to win now or win later. We're not satisfied with compromise. We're not satisfied. That's the All problem right. now. Right. Too many folk are satisfied with a little bit. Yeah. And this movement... That's why this, in this movement, if somebody said, if somebody says we're going to raise the minimum wage to $12, ain't y'all happy? No. <laughs> we, we want it to be what it ought to be. So I'm just going to agree and say that's why we got to have social scientists and theologians in the same space. Right. So we can get, because we got to get our language right. Okay. So, okay. okay. So let's just okay. say, let's just, let's just shake hand on the, 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 the social scientists and the preacher want to win. Right on. All right. Now. So, you know, one way to think about this is I want us to get evidence. And again, uh, Reverend Barber is much more useful than I'll ever be, but I want to be at least a little useful so I can offer some evidence that we can use. We can use this evidence. So, you know, if, if somebody sadly passes away and there's some company that's negligent, they're responsible for the death, there's probably going to be a lawsuit, there's going to be a settlement, and they're going to pay the family for the loss of that person, their family. If we have a new government... Yeah. yeah, if we have a new government regulation, they do a cost-benefit exercise. They're like, well, how many lives does this save? How much does it cost? And everybody agrees that you can put a dollar value, sadly, 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 on human life. You can put a dollar value on it. But let's play this game. It's five, ten million dollars per life. If you lose a breadwinner to a family, you got to take care of that family. you got to compensate that family. All right? So let's put a dollar value on these 183,000 deaths. Yes, sir. Right. And let's say we do it very, very conservatively. That 183,000 is the conservative estimate. Now let's estimate the value of a human life very conservatively. Let's just say $1 million. That's cheap, okay? Even if you do that, that results in $183 billion that would be saved by reducing poverty. $183 billion. That's more than we spend on SNAP or what we know as food stamps. That's more than 10 times what we spend on temporary assistance to needy families. That's more than we spend on the EITC, the CTC, and what have you. So the cost of social policies should be compared against the cost of all this death from poverty. And if we do that cost-benefit analysis, if we convince policymakers that it's cost-effective to fight poverty, this gives us hopefully a useful argument in and, our campaign. And Dr. Brady. Yeah. I, you don't know how useful you are in that because here's what, I'm, what we are arguing in this movement, that what you just said is in fact, see, see economics used to be only studied under the, under the concept of moral philosophy. Economics was not a set alone. We took it out of moral philosophy so that economics could be seen as benign and immoral. It's not. Economics kills. In the scriptures, in the Jewish scriptures, for instance, it says that, that a nation must loose the bands of wickedness. Loose the bands of wickedness means pay people what they deserve. Absolutely. Then it says that nation 
cannot repair its economic breaches until it does that. So in a real sense, I'm glad you're doing this because what we're saying is it is immoral to, in fact, make poor people pray, P-R-E-Y, not P-R-A-Y. It is, the, the scripture said, woe unto those who legislate evil and rob the poor. The scripture teaches that a nation will never be prosperous as long as it's hurting the poor. Yeah. So, so what, what happens here is we're actually showing the nation there's this intersectionality. You can't be in Congress and every time you get in the office, you swear, your, swear yourself into office on a Bible or Quran or a or a, um, a, a Bible, a Quran, or a, a Torah, and you don't know what's in either one of them. <laughs> Especially when it relates to how you treat the least of these. So this is very powerful what you're doing. Yes, sir. Keep on. Okay, last thing I'll say on this issue is that how do we use this for political mobilization? Well, I would argue that, it, you know, of course, compassion and sympathy, evo evo emotional evocation are always good things. And many people can do this much better than me. But what I would also say, we also should argue that reducing poverty is in the interests of everyone. That's and do. that's helpful to make this argument. That's okay. the last thing I'll say. And, and, and it's so important that you say that because... You know how you did that thing? Some of us can argue the companion pointed at me. No, I argue numbers, baby. <laughs> and this movement argues numbers. And that's why we have you, because we, if, as long as we have a separation, like it feels good, but it's, it, it's good for No, it's both and. Yeah. The, the, the nation will never get itself together as long as you have a permanent poverty in this nation that does not have to be. Poverty does not have to exist. In fact, let me start there. Let's thank this doc. Thank him for this research. Thank you. You want hours now, doc. Now, let me ask you a question. What number did you use as the baseline for poverty? Because, you know, when we started this movement, we, we did some studies, and yeah. we looked at poverty and low wealth. Yeah. Uh, and the number came out to be 43% uh, of the nation, 50% of our children. 100 and uh, over 140 million people poverty and low wealth. I'm going to ask my sister economic policy in a minute on this. And somebody tried to question us, and they said, well, really, there's only 30, 40 million poor people. And I asked them, well, what number? And they said, well, the government says yeah. that if you make the, about $13,000 a year, you're not poor. <laughs> so they actually, so, yeah, there are actually legislators and congresspeople that argue that at 725, you make $15,000 a year, which puts you in the low middle class. Yeah. You're not poor. Yeah. Can, I, can I say what I would say if we were on the football line and we were trying to go across? Can you wham out a minute, Doc? Just wham out a minute. Just, just, and then I'm going to come to my sister. Yeah. About that crazy number to try to limit sure, poverty sure. to some... You know, thirteen thousand dollars. You're not poor. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. The best way to define poverty is simply define it simply. It just means very, very simply, you do not have enough resources, however we measure resources, to meet your needs. Okay, that's all it is. You don't have enough resources to meet your needs. And we can measure resources different way. I just look at income because I'm a boring academic and we got good data on that. But wealth is a resource too, right? So all we want to, what I agree upon is it's just a shortage of resources relative to your needs. Now what's usually used is the official poverty measure, which is absurd. It's utterly absurd. Okay. It's incredibly low threshold. It underestimates poverty massively. Everybody agrees it's not a good way to measure poverty. 
And so what I'm using is a classic international way is to say what's the middle of the income distribution, the median of the income distribution, and what's one half of that. We'll call that a relative poverty measure. Mine's okay. not perfect. Okay. I would entirely embrace uh, measuring wealth as well. I just don't have as good a data on it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. We can't hear you out there on this, but thank you. Now, so, so you, you agree with our measurement, and we say low poverty and low wealth or poverty and low wages. Let me ask you one question. Did your numbers yet... Did you dis disaggregate uh, by geographic area? Not in this study. We don't have the data for that, so we need to do more studies. Again, okay. it, it stunned me that the, the government doesn't have the number of deaths associated with poverty. We have estimates on smoking, obesity. We have estimates on all kinds of things. Why don't we have a number on this? So I was, thought it was like, surely I'm wrong. Surely somebody has got this number, and we've only done really the first of what needs to be okay. many studies on this. Well, one of the things that we know, we know in this movement that folk want to put it in a box. They don't want to talk about it. I mean, we did an analysis of every presidential debate for the longest time. We can't find anywhere where poverty got 30 minutes attention. So here you have an issue that's affecting, uh, uh, that might be one of the studies you do. Yeah, can, like can you give me credit on that? Down. Can you yes. give me just yeah. some? Okay. All right. I'm helping him. Y'all see that? Y'all see it right. Okay. But, 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 but seriously. We, we look at all these presidential debates and we say, wait a minute, you got 43% of the people poor and low wealth or low wages, over 50% of the children, and not one person running for president or for senate ever gets asked yeah. if you get elected. Yeah. Yeah. But you get asked about these crazy cultural wars, yeah. and you get asked about stuff like banning books and, yeah. and, and, and what are you going to do about immigrants or people who aren't aren't coming to America, they're coming back home because America stole Texas from them. I mean, okay, let me not go there. But my point, my, my point is, my point is that, 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 you know, homicide is heard every night on the news. And every presidential candidate runs saying, part of what I'm going to do is keep you safe. And yet here's this, and yet here's this data. So it's so important. Let me ask over here, when you hear this, when you hear this um, to the, uh, Greg and to Valerie, um, and you hear David's uh, piece, and you look at, if we talk about, you know, uh, what's killing people, you know, we talk Black Lives Matters, and we talk about police killing, and we talk about the, the deaths during uh, COVID. Uh, but when we look at the lives lost to poverty, black lives, white, Latino, native, you know, as Dave, uh, uh, I'm going to come to you first, Greg, as a, as a public health specialist, and uh, uh, you're in the same field my daughter is, when you hear Brady's presentation this morning, what do you want to say about that to this movement and to the nation? The nation's listening. He's been, uh, uh, talk to us a little bit. So a couple of things. One is um, over 175 years ago, a doctor was sent to a typhus epidemic in a part of Poland in Germany. And he came back and he said, medical statistics will be our guide. We'll look to see where the dead lie thicker among the workers of the privileged. You see where I'm going? Uh -huh. The point Talk is, a bit louder, sorry. Yeah. medical statistics will be our guide. We'll look to see where the dead lie thicker among the workers of the privileged. There's a field called social medicine, and this doctor, Rudolf Virchow, basically discovered that poverty kills 175 years ago, right? 175 years ago. Um, one of the first things they teach you in public health school, like Sherelle and I both went to public health school, 
is that it's not just about pills into bodies that keep you, keep you healthy, right? I wake up every morning and I take my anti-HIV, anti-retroviral medicines, right? I'm alive 25 years later because of them. But guess what? 80% of our health is not about the biomedical, right? It's about what we call the social determinants of health. It's about income, but it's about housing. It's about education. It's about all the things we, we need to keep ourselves safe and happy and healthy, right? 80% of health is based on the social determinants of health. Now, we talked about how poverty kills, but let's talk about life expectancy in the U.S. The Institute for Health Metrics in Seattle ranked us in the 40s worldwide for life expectancy, right? That doesn't mean just France, Germany. It means many countries that are much, much poorer than we are. And you know what they say? By 2040, we will be in the 60s, in the 60s in global health rankings in terms of life expectancy. And so it doesn't surprise me that poverty kills. It, it hasn't surprised many people in public health that this is indeed the facts. But what we need to do to lift ourselves up is to address poverty, but also all the social protections that keep us safe, right? All the protections that keep us safe. You need a good place to live. You need a good job. You need clean water. You need proper sanitation. And this is what we fought for for public health. You think of public health as a science and you do it in, in academic centers. We were campaigners, right? The history of public health is the history of social movements and the history of the sanitation movement, clean water, sewage disposal, all of this. And we've done it before. So there's a proud history in this movement that links back 150, 175 years ago, right? The other thing is that we need to realize that, that those who have power to make choices that create poverty, right? Don't get it wrong. Don't get it wrong by mistake or by ignorance. They make this, and this isn't me. This is a, these are two economists, a guy named Daron Isamoglu from MIT, I probably butchered his name, and a guy named James Robinson who's at the University of Chicago. Yeah. And they wrote a book called Why Nations Fail. They went back to BC all the way to the current time, and it's always about this. Right? Say that again, why? Nations fail. Uh, we have, yeah, okay. It's a book stop. But the, the passage in that book that stopped me cold was this one about people making choices. People are, po are poor, people are in poverty because other people make choices. And choices that benefit them. There are incentives, right? There are incentives built into, into, into systems that, that keep people sick, that keep people poor. Matthew Desmond, a sociologist from, from Princeton University, just wrote a book called Poverty, Comma, by America. And it's all, all about who benefits from keep, keeping people poor, right? And so it's the same thing for public health and ill health. We're sick, we're dying, not because of who we are, right? It's because of choices other people, other people make. Remember, we spend more on health in the United States than, than almost every other industrialized democracy, and we have these outcomes that are 40, 40th in ranking, 50th in ranking soon for, public, for life expectancy. We're going to take a short station break. When we return, we will continue with the voice of Bishop William Barber.
Welcome back to Sojourner Truth. If you've missed any part of this hour from 10 this morning for 90 days after that, just go to kpfk.org, scroll down to archives, click on Sojourner Truth. You'll be able to hear the show in its entirety and you can subscribe for a free podcast. You can also check us out nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. Just look for Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott. And today we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Selma, Alabama, and internationally to our SoundCloud listeners in my home island of Barbados. We are now going to return to part two of Bishop William Barber addressing the 2023 Poor People's Campaign Moral Poverty Action Congress. If you missed part one, please go on SoundCloud where you can get it on the Sojourner Truth Show. Let us go now to Bishop Barber. So, Greg, you know, Desmond is on our team. You know, he's, we work, we, we pulling in all the scholars because every movement's got to have these footnotes. So when you hear us as a movement, because we dig deep into data, I want y'all to be clear on that. This is not a feel-good type movement. We dig deep into data because the data, you know, where your treasure is is where your heart is. You can't talk to me about your morality unless you be showing me where you're spending your money and, who, and, and who's benefiting that and where you stand in relationship to the dispossessed. But... Um, when you hear us say we need a third reconstruction to end poverty and low wealth and low wages, to end it, Greg, does that sound like some way outlandish dream that we shouldn't be pursuing, or is it right like what the special rapporteur for poverty said to me at the UN when he said, Reverend Barber, we got three lies that we that are just lies. The lie of scarcity. You don't have a scarcity resource. The lie that we don't know what to do, or that poverty is simply poor people's bad choices, and rather than the bad choices of our economic choices. And then he said, but the third lie is that that we don't that that we don't have the moral that we don't have the moral capacity morally to reshape our policy. He said all of those are lies. We have all of that. The issue is, will we do it? And, 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 and if you all aren't going to call for ending poverty and low wealth, then just you might as well stay out of the game because you've got plenty of people that just want to tweak it a little bit and feel real good. So when you hear that as a, as a public health scientist, you think we out there somewhere? No, I say where do you sign up, right? <laughs> where do you sign up? No, seriously. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. So... This isn't about poverty, it's about existential politics, right? About whose way of life gets to survive, right? And it's, it's not about, you know, and if you start thinking about the environment, there's an there's a environmental epidemiologist at the University of Toronto, but an American, who said this is about whose way of life gets to survive. Is it ExxonMobil and, and Shell? Or is it Miami Beach and the Maldives who sink underwater? This is about whether we're going to survive as a species or not. So everybody, this is not just about poverty, it's course about poverty, but it's about existential politics, about who gets to survive. Yeah. Literally the, literally the heart, soul, and life of the, the, the world and the democracy. And y'all, we have to remember that. That's why we, this, we don't have time for foolishness. What we're doing is not tiddlywinks. It's, we, we can't beat up on each other because we're really fighting for the very soul and life of the world and the nation. And, and you know, telling the truth in a time of lies is the first major revolution. 
You just got to tell the truth. And lastly, when Desmond talks about, we, you know, he says the abolition of poverty. And I love that language, the abolition of poverty. You know, that we need to put that, and we need to push and see which politicians and others are willing to say that, and we got to push them to do it. We got to have a movement that constantly pushes it, will not back up on that. And I hear you agreeing with that. Valerie, here you are, an economist from EPI, Economic Policy Institute. And you all don't, you don't do your politics for Democrats, for Republicans. You don't do your analysis based on party. You do your analysis based on facts. And uh, we're so glad that you would come today. Talk to us a little bit about what, what you hear and want to say based on what's been said and the cost of this. The, 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 and I say the moral cost, meaning, for me, meaning moral means human, economic, all of it. It's mm -hmm. all comp compiled up. Um, and maybe respond if you feel comfortable in doing it. After looking at the data, if we were to recover what I think his name was Ingalls in the 18th century said when he looked at the policies and said that if politicians and policymakers know on the front end that a, po a policy is causing death and they implement it anyway, then you must call what they're doing policy murder or policy death. And then he said, not manslaughter, because manslaughter would mean you didn't know. Uh, do we have any excuse for not knowing, Valerie? And what is your response? I don't want to tie you in a box. I'm trying to give you a broad, your response to this. So first of all, I want to start off sort of where we were talking about the numbers and where these numbers come from. Uh -huh. We've thrown a lot of numbers out here. I, I, I think David's um, definition of poverty really gets to it on, in a very <clears throat> basic sense. Poverty is just having inadequate in income or economic resources to meet your basic material needs. But I also like the idea that you all are bringing in a broader definition and thinking about it in terms of poverty, meaning inadequate income and low wealth. Okay. And the reason I say that is because income and, and wealth are two different things. Your income is what you have coming in on a regular basis, whether that be weekly or monthly. Typically a paycheck for most people in this country, but you know, also other kinds of resources um, and benefits that people receive. Your wealth then is what you have access to if those payments were to stop. And so even when we find that by income standards, people may be typically, I mean, are, are uh, what am I trying to say? maybe literally above the poverty threshold, many more people are much closer to that because if that income were to stop, there's nothing there right. to catch them. That's right, okay, I got you. And so, and so that's why I think it's important to have that broader definition when we're having these kinds of discussions. I also think a lot of the language that was used during the pandemic and in sort of crafting the pandemic response is interesting and instructive as you know you were just making points about the morality of our policy making and, and whether we know what to do, whether we have the resources to do it. A lot of the language that we used at that time, and we've said this ourselves at EPI, that the pandemic policy response was generally effective for limiting the depth and the length of the crisis because we had a response at the scale of the problem. So we didn't just you know throw pennies at it. We had a big economic policy response. 
The other thing that we hear uh, as it relates to that is that we had a, a policy response of that magnitude because we were responding to a global economic and public health crisis. It's interesting that we can use that kind of language in response to the pandemic, but in light of the idea that poverty is the fourth leading cause of death, I would say those are things that apply all the time, right? Right, right, right. No, we're not just doing a pandemic. Not just, there's always a an pandemic. economic crisis That's right. in, in many communities around this country. There's always a public health crisis in communities around this country. And that requires that we have a response at the scale of that problem. And so I would argue that many of the things that we did during the pandemic, by expanding access to a lot of income supports like the unemployment insurance, uh, the child tax credits, uh, economic impact payments was basically just getting a check, the government sending checks to people because they know people need money to meet their basic material needs. Again, we know <laughs> what it takes to address the issue of poverty. Uh, but they also did things that directly impacted, like food insecurity. You know, for children, school-aged children, regardless of where you were on the income scale, they were providing free meals. You know, why is that not something that can be done um, you know, during a time that is not just a global or national crisis. So, so I, I, I guess I'm hearing Dave and Greg and Valerie, you all saying something that we need to say. We had a COVID pandemic start in 2019, but we had a poverty pandemic and epidemic before the COVID pandemic. Right. And if we had a, been addressing the poverty, low wealth, low wage pandemic epidemic before COVID, COVID wouldn't have even been so bad. We'd right. have been more prepared to deal with COVID. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm saying. Um, benefits addressing housing insecurity. They had things that, you know, prevented people from being put out of their homes during the pandemic. So again, we know what to do, uh, and it is just a matter of, of actually getting it done. And this issue of what poverty costs is one thing, but also the issue of who benefits from poverty. Can, can I ask you and David, I'm going to come to Valerie in a minute and jump in on this. I want you all to flip that question over, because one thing in this movement, we often find that, you know, a misdiagnosis is going to make you sicker. A misdiagnosis is going to make you sick. You're already sick. But if you get mis so if you got a misdiagnosis about who is poor, your only way of looking at poverty, first of all, if you say it's, it's people's own personal decision, that's one of the misdiagnoses. That grows all the way back to the critics of the New Deal. Uh, uh, it goes all the way back to the critics of, of the Freedmen's Bureau after slavery, where there's articles were written saying basically the black people are just immoral, so there's no need for us to keep spending this money, and they discounted all the damage that was done during slavery. I mean, it's it, it just bad misdiagnosis. If you um, misdiagnose what a real living wage is, then you only make people sicker. If you misdiagnose the need for health care, the other thing is if you raise the wrong question, so I want to flip a question over and have y'all respond. Joseph Sticklitz, who's a friend of this movement, says the part of the problem in America is we keep asking the wrong question. Every time we sit down to do analysis, first of all, what if we had done, and we, we agree with a number of things that happened during the pandemic and the response. We're not anti-everything. But the question we ask is 
what if the response had been built from the poor up? If it wasn't a neoliberal middle class up and a trickle down, up, down, but from the poorest up, some real somber. Yeah. I mean, so what, what, is, what is the cost? It's hundreds of billions of dollars, if you want to think of it that way. Um, just even if, you know, I would be delighted with abolition of poverty, but even if we moved American poverty for being this outlier to a typical rich democracy, which would mean we cut it in half, that would save way over $100 billion. One of the ways to think about this is that in the early 1980s, we ran an experiment where we gradually expanded Medicaid across the United States for children. So before the 80s, it was very rare for poor kids in the South to get Medicaid. Afterwards, there was slightly more access to Medicaid. Now, 30, 40 years later, we can see where those kids went and it saves millions, billions of dollars because they're healthier, they do better, they live longer, they're less likely to have chronic disease. So there's both that short-term cost, hundred billions of dollars, but there's also a long-term cost in that we're squandering the potential of the country. And so, Val so Valerie, thank you. So Valerie, when, when, when the Economic Policy Institute, when we did our third reconstruction budget, we told y'all to tear it apart. You know, go after it, critique it. And you all came back and said that not only was the budget good, it was in the black budget, if I will. In other words, to invest in these things doesn't leave the country in the red. It would actually put the country in the black. It would put the country ahead. Is that still true? You know, there are a lot of things that contributed to inflation. So again, we were having a, a global pandemic and all of the things that that wrought in terms of, you know, people shifting their consumption from services to more goods. We had the whole supply shock thing that, you know, everybody heard about. It was harder to get things, so that causes prices to go up. There's a war in Ukraine, so that raises prices to some extent. Um, corporate profits contributed to, <laughs> to the increase. And, 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 and price gouging. Price right? gouging. And, and, uh, a piece of that. Yeah, you know, look, look, just some of that. And, and, uh, what is the and, and so the, the, the real question when we're thinking about wages and whether or not it's going to uh, influence inflation, you have to consider whether wages are growing faster than inflation. That's when it becomes a problem. Because then wages go up, then prices go up, then wages have to go up again because prices are high and you just keep spiraling. That's not the case. So at this point, no, we don't need to suppress wages to bring inflation down. In fact, wage growth has been slowing in, in recent years, and well, recent months probably more likely. Um, so wage growth is actually helping to dampen inflation as opposed to making it worse right. at this particular point. So, so, so go ahead, Dave. I was going to say another example is think about places where in the U.S. economy where costs are out of control, I think of the healthcare industry. And it's surely not because the wages are too high for the janitors and the nurses and the, you know, the assistants. Um, it's because drug industry is making tons of money. The insurance companies are making too much money. The, the hospital corporations are making too much money. And all of them are bilking Medicaid and Medicare. So the healthcare is a perfect example of the inefficiency of the American economy. So when our costs are out of control, it's not because the workers are doing too well. Well, you know, you know, the, the old lie is that folk like in this room and the movements like this just want to hand out, just want, uh, you know, welfare. But, 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 I know that, yeah. <laughs> but, but the question, I'm, I want to say to the nation, what the lies are. That's why I'm saying it up here. 
See, because to help a nation, you got to tell her what her lies are. Right, yeah, right. The misdiagnosis is real, y'all. And so, so the lie that health care is a handout, the lie is that a living wage is a handout, when really it is just equal protection under the law. It's, it's, a, it's just promoting the general welfare. It's just the right thing to do. And, 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 but, but even, in, in, in David, I want to raise one more question or comment up here. We, we have some numbers that say if we had just raised the minimum wage to $15, you know, when two Democrats and 49 Republicans blocked one vote, that millions of people, closer to 40 million people, would have come up out of low wages, but it would have also pumped $330-some billion in the economy. And if, in fact, corporations weren't getting so much corporate welfare and would pay their workers, then, then you wouldn't have to be trying to kick people off public assistance because people would have different, different, uh, sufficient wages and sufficient income. Am I wrong on that? <laughs> if you really want people off of public assistance, then pay them what they deserve because a lot of people are working. Is that? We get about a second. Yes, sir. Is that right? Sir, this is my friend. She's like a daughter to me. We know what we're doing up here, brother. We're not saying we're not having foolishness now. Thank you, sir. Yeah, you don't have to defend her. This girl is like a daughter to we're me. We're good. Yes. So yes, I was. So there's a statistic. The majority about. 59 or 60 percent of workers um, whose total income is below the poverty line would receive a pay increase if the minimum wage were increased. So yes, the minimum wage would have a significant impact on those living below the official poverty thank, line. Thank you. Thank you. We are out of time today. Show produced by me, Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank Jose uh, Benavides for his help with editing and with today's show. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. We also must thank the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, the national office, for allowing us to share this sound with you. Thank you for listening. Um, stay tuned for more programming here on your station. Sojourner Truth will be back on the air on Tuesday of next week. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. And you all, please remember to stay well and safe and have a wonderful rest of the week. Mm -hmm.